It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Some chapters back, one Bulkington was spoken of, a tall new landed mariner, encountered in New Bedford at the inn. Hi, welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Tilly. And I'm Ben. Uh, And today uh, we are covering chapters 23 through 27 of Moby Dick, uh, starting with chapter 23, The Lee Shore. Um, And uh, we're going to treat this one slightly differently because, uh, Ben, would you say that this is your favorite chapter in the whole book? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the way I describe it is there are some other moments in the book that are as, you know, important to me or as, as striking as the Lee Shore as chapter, but this chapter is all that moment, whereas other chapters, as, as fun as they are, have various other things as well. It's, it's sort of undiluted thing, and we'll get into what that thing is in a second. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't have any other preliminaries, so please... Go right ahead. Uh, Summarize it. So the Lee Shore is, um, obviously it's set just as they've been uh, taking off in the Pequod. The journey is really beginning. And it's inserted there uh, with just sort of a very short, not even really a description of Bulkington, this uh, mariner that we met previously. I I read the first uh, sentence of the chapter uh, before we actually started. And it's just about really very little. Ishmael sees that Bulkington is the helmsman, and he sees that the wind is blowing uh, across the ship from the ocean to the shore, which is, that's why it's called the Lee Shore. The the shore is in the lee of the ship. And uh, Ishmael... Uh, Just for for people who don't know what the the lee is, literally the side that's not, the the side that the wind is not coming from. Yes, Um, it's the, the... if you're in the lee of something, the wind is hitting it before it's hitting you. Um, yes. And what's and thank you for reminding me that not everyone knows what lee is. I'm boat nerd. Yeah. Um, but what's important here is that Ishmael is very struck by this combination of images of Bulkington setting out as the helmsman again immediately after having landed on shore and uh, landed back in safety because going out in a ship is a dangerous affair. And it's uh, it's midwinter. In fact, I think it's just after Christmas or just on Christmas Day. Um, Bulkington has signed back up to take off on this grim ship Pequod and he's sailing directly into the wind as he does this. And so... Uh, to Ishmael, these things combine into this image of one who uh, is driven away from safety because in a, a lee shore is very dangerous because while the shore itself is safer than being out in the ocean in a storm, if you uh, try to sail anywhere near the shore, you'll be thrust onto it by the wind and your boat will be um, destroyed or at the very least wrecked and uh, it, and grounded. So... In this, Ishmael sees a metaphor that he then extends to sort of um, 
glorify Bulkington as this figure of one who understands that one has to uh, press outward into the the unknown, the unsafe, and uh, we, we can go further into this, but the important part is it's basically Ishmael rhapsodizing for less than a full page, and that's the entire chapter on this figure of Bulkington, one who, upon landing on the on land, immediately returns to, uh, well, the phrase is the howling infinite. And I, I just love that. Yeah. Um, I think it's worth mentioning, just uh, something that you didn't bring up, is that um, he does... Uh, heavily imply that Bulkington will die later oh, on Oh, right, yeah, yeah, no, he, um, he absolutely just pretty much straightforwardly states that this is Bulkington's last voyage. Yeah, um, the, I think the, the, the most, like, straightforward statement of that is, this six-inch chapter is the stoneless grave of Bulkington. Yes, um, and... So I, it's like a memorial. Yes, and I, I want to actually uh, immediately draw us back to the chapel earlier, where these graves for sailors were, where there's no mm. bodies, there's just these inscriptions and this sort of memory. And I think that, that there's a very intentional element of sort of constructing this idea of the sailor, and specifically the whaler, the, the mariner in general, as passing out of this world in a way that can't really be uh, memorialized in stone, where you can have these memorials uh, in the chapel, but they're v- deeply uncertain. There's a, there's a speculative element almost to the idea that these people are dead, even when you're absolutely certain they're dead. Um, and I think that this idea, this chapter is the six-inch grave of Bulkington, um, or the six-inch chapter is the stoneless grave of Bulkington, is uh, a very straightforward statement of that kind of... Um, almost morbid quality that the sea has had from the first chapter, Loomings, where or the first serious chapter, you know what I mean, um, where death and going to sea are really closely linked. So um, I guess I, I want to ask, I mean, like, I, I think I understand to some extent what, what stands out to you about this chapter, that it's this sort of dramatic statement of this thematic idea about, you know, the the fatal ocean um but uh so do you find like because it's not just that um you know ishmael is saying like the ocean is deadly but he's also yes. kind of as you said glorifying um the the pursuit of that danger the howling infinites i'm gonna keep saying that sorry <laughs> <laughs> um so like do you find that like compelling like do you read this and does it make you want to go do dangerous shit i mean yeah, because, uh, I mean, there's also a really important sentence, possibly the most important sentence in this chapter, even if it's not my favorite. God, I have favorite sentences in this chapter. Send me to nerd jail. Um, uh, I'm sorry. It turns out that nerd jail is, in fact, this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair. Uh, Wonderfulest things are ever the unmentionable. Deep memories yield no epitaphs. This six-inch chapter is the stoneless grave of Bulkington. Um and that phrase, wondless, wonderfulest things are ever the unmentionable, is kind of a thesis statement for the entire novel. Um, and we'll, we'll, I will return to this many times, but it's, it's super linked to that idea that Ishmael is a bad storyteller, that he's constantly struggling to say things he can't actually say. 
And uh, there's a bit less of that actually in this chapter in that this is talking about that feeling and he's managing to put it into words, in fact, far more effectively than he often manages to put his philosophical positions into words. But this, this idea of um, the port would fain give succor, the port is pitiful, in the port is safety, comfort, hearthstone, supper, warm blankets, friends, all that's kind to our mortalities. But in that gale, the port, the land, is that ship's direst jeopardy. She must fly all hospitality. One touch of land, though it but graze the keel, would make her shudder through and through. With all her might, she crowds all sail offshore. In so doing, fights against the very winds that fain would blow her homeward, seeks all the lashed sea's landlessness again, for refuge's sake, for lonely rushing into peril, her only friend, her bitterest foe. First of all, that's just really compelling as a, as a, it's rhythm, it's the way it's written. But also it's this statement of, to some extent, uh, opposed to complacency, and I think it's deeply religious, that, that phrase, all that's kind to our mortalities, juxtaposed against the howling infinite, the ocean indefinite as God, as he puts it. And there's this sense of, I mean, this is a pun, but profundity, of being in deep waters, of uncertain spaces being where you can attain some kind of knowledge or freedom of the soul that uh, normal, everyday, safe, reasonable life uh, to some extent, prevents that the lee shore, this return to land and remaining there, is uh, ultimately something that has to be, at the very least, resisted or temporarily cast off if you want to sort of grasp these higher things. And I think that in that particular aspect, this idea that the um, this high tragedy of the ocean, this wild, this howling infinite, is... Uh, is a deeply meaningful thing that's sort of hidden behind or inaccessible in the context of, well, our comfort zones, to put it in a very modern term, uh, I, f I do find that very compelling. And the idea that there are things that cannot be spoken of related to that, also very compelling. Yeah. Yeah, there's, um, would you say that there's almost a, an element of, like, like a, um, a weird kind of asceticism here? Oh, yes, Absolutely. Like, I, it's not, there isn't, like, the implication that, like, like he's, he's, he's not actually saying, like, oh, it's bad to be on port. Um, it almost seems like, um, it almost, I, I guess the, the, the sense that I get of, um, how he looks at Bulkington and, and his, uh, you know, his choice to go out to sea immediately, mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's kind of, like, you know, I impressive, and like admirable and and like worthy of of this celebration, but also, um, you know, it's not what Ishmael does. Like, well, even though Ishmael goes to sea to like experience, you yeah, know, he doesn't these have, things. Yeah, e even he doesn't do what Bulkington is doing and like barely spend any time on land when he comes back, right? Yes, and actually, um, I. But before we recorded, we sort of negotiated how much of this I was allowed to read aloud. Because um, I was like, can I just read the whole chapter? Um, and very reasonably said I shouldn't. That makes it sound like I'm like a harsh taskmaster. I feel bad. No, no. I, you were the voice of reason. I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to drive into that howling infinite and also drive away everyone who could possibly be listening to this. Uh but I will say, I, I suspect uh, if people don't want to hear any of Moby Dick read, read aloud, they should not be listening to this podcast. Um, Fair, but uh, what I was but, going to say is, 
we, we talked about it. And can I, I think now would be a good time to read the last two paragraphs? Yeah, please go ahead. And this continues directly from that, that last bit I was reading. Know ye now, Bulkington? Glimpses do ye seem to see of that mortally intolerable truth, that all deep, earnest thinking is but the intrepid effort of the soul to keep the open independence of her sea, while the wildest winds of heaven and earth conspire to cast her on the treacherous, slavish shore. But as in landlessness alone resides highest truth, shoreless, indefinite as God, so better is it to perish in that howling infinite than be ingloriously dashed upon the lee, even if that were safety. For worm-like then, oh, who would crave and crawl to land? Terrors of the terrible, is all this agony so vain? Take heart, take heart, O Bulkington, bear thee grimly, demigod, up from the spray of thy ocean perishing, straight up leaps thy apotheosis. And I, yeah, I just really love that. The, um, this, uh, this absolute, um, sense that, yeah, Bulkington is attaining something that I think is deeply important to Ishmael, but that he does not himself feel he has sort of the stomach to pursue so intensely, and so he admires Bulkington. And that, that phrase, uh, in landlessness alone resides highest truth, shoreless, indefinite as God. Yeah, it's a, you know, one thing that strikes, I hadn't thought about this until this moment, but I think it's very interesting and also kind of funny um, that he makes that claim, which is like, on some level, what he's saying is like, the only truly good people are sailors, um, or the only truly like, like spiritually free people are sailors, maybe would be a better way of putting it. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily sort of morally good, but it's absolutely profound again i think might be a good word for it yeah and you know i don't think it's unreasonable to connect the idea of like moral uprightness and sort of um like i guess uh like deep knowledge like i, I think those things are connected for ishmael um if that makes sense mm -hmm. uh and uh it's very anyway Gnostic. what i think is funny is that he's like making this claim Really, like, without too much uh, uh, explanation for it, you know, he, he's 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 calling Bulkington a demigod, um, sort of almost out of nowhere. And then the next chapter, uh, the Advocate, is all him trying to convince the reader that actually whaling is cool um, and good. <laughs> yeah. And so it's it's sort of like he said, like, yes, whalers, the most admirable and like spiritually powerful beings in existence. And, like, everyone looked at him and was like, what are you talking about? Whalers are scum. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I... Yeah, no, I think there's definitely some of that. There's also a real, another real irony in that, uh, if you'll remember a few chapters back, he aggressively tried to argue that asceticism is bad to Queequeg. Yep, I do remember that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was... Yeah, that's kind of what I was, I should have, like, explicitly said, but that was what I was thinking when I said, like, don't you think there's a kind of asceticism here? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, I think that the, hmm, how would I, it's, it's not just that it's hypocrisy, I think it's also a question of the particular qualities of that asceticism, because he's very clear that it's not about, like, 
hell and heaven here. In fact, this is, you know, it's not a moral claim. It's not that getting killed in the ocean means you go to heaven, though he does say that up from the spray of thy ocean perishing straight up leaps thy apotheosis. But apotheosis is not salvation. It's something a bit different, and I think that's also important. There's this sense of um, of oneness with the divine or sort of access to it. And again, this idea that the divine is this huge unknowable thing that is present in the ocean sort of symbolically, or that the I think the way I might say it is it's not so much that the ocean itself is is divine or magical as that it has qualities that are shared with Ishmael's sense of the divine. And I think that's very important in, spoilers, a book about the giant white whale that may or may not be considered a nemesis to all humanity and a power beyond reckoning. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it also, uh, it, it occurs to me, I feel like the, the slight sort of, I wouldn't even call it a disagreement, but like the, the, the back and forth we've had over like, oh, are there moral claims in this chapter? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like part of the reason that we're hesitating to say this chapter is like making a moral statement, even though it's very obviously celebrating someone for doing something, right? Mm-hmm. Like it is on some level saying Bulkington made, made a good choice here yeah. um, because it's celebrating him for it. But I think there's a sense of like, like Ishmael is not presenting this as like, you have to do this to be a good Christian, which I think is how most moral choices that he, you know, is, is yeah. presented with yeah, would yeah. be sort of looked at it, it's it's like a different idea of what um what what can be expected of a person it's almost like oh uh, this is going oh yes yes yes, yes so yes. what i was about to say is it's it's like bulkington is sort of like ha- achieving a higher standard that like the average person shouldn't be expected to um like uh, almost as Almost like the the role that, um, like, you know, clergy are actually supposed to hold, where they are held to, like, a higher moral standard that wouldn't be applied to other humans. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I... I'm obviously thinking about things later in the book as well that are very compelling to me, but I think an important thing is that this is shortly before we meet Starbuck, who is... um, I don't think this is a huge spoiler because it's often it's often discussed. Starbuck is a very um, morally upright and, in many ways, sort of doctrinaire Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He's in in fact he sort of becomes the voice of uh, sort of not less doctrine and more sort of classic theology for a lot of the um, for a lot of the book. Uh, in in contrast to Ahab, who is not that. Um, right. And Ishmael, who's obviously uh, not that either in all his various ways. For example, universalism. But, uh, and I think... Also that... calling a person a demigod. Like, yeah, most, no, you're... Most Christians yeah, wouldn't do that. Yeah, yeah, nope, fair. Um, barely grimly demigod. Your Thy apotheosis is certainly not... Uh, yeah, um, yeah, sorry, I, I, that, that did, that just stopped me for a second. Uh... No, what I was going to say is, um, and I've mentioned that I'm going to be really on my bullshit about Gnosticism with this book, but um, I think an important distinction here that might be pointed to is that uh, Gnosticism, which was being rediscovered in the time, though not as much as it was in the late 20th century, um, there were, you know, discussions of it as a heresy. Uh, Gnosticism is about knowledge, like Gnosis is knowledge. 
that's where it gets the name. And there's this sense of a difference between faith and knowledge as means of sort of accessing the divine, both of which are deeply meaningful, but um, one of which is very much doctrinaire Christianity, uh, that being faith, and Gnosticism is a heresy precisely in a large part because it has this sense of, well, it's less about sort of morality and a covenant and much more about learning from and imitating the divine. And I think that's part of what's going on here. I think that, well, it's not necessarily knowledge in the sense of like, you know, elaborate academic knowledge, but an experience of the howling infinite, that howling infinite, um, makes Bulkington more godlike, not more Christian. Yeah, I I think, um, yeah, like, I, it's interesting because, um, like, I, I think you're right, but also I think I said something earlier about, like, the idea of, like, knowledge versus morality in this chapter, and I think, mm-hmm. I think that, like, uh, what am I trying to say? Um, I mean, I do think that, um, like, I think that this is a, a, a way of looking at what is, like, considered to be, you know, admirable and and noble um, that can be kind of, like, it, it's almost like this is, uh, at least the way this feels to me right now, is that this chapter is kind of um, Ishmael, like, pushing the boundaries of what he's, like, willing to say about um, about faith and, like, what it is supposed to be. Um, like, I think it, that's... I think that's possible, but I, I want to amend that slightly. I think it's him pushing up the boundaries about of what he's capable of saying, how he how he can say things. Because again, wonderfulest things are ever the unmentionable. Mm. I don't think. I think Ishmael is pretty o- open to like saying things that might be you know heretical or unusual. I mean, he straightforwardly is a universalist in these chapters, but he's not very good at expressing a lot of stuff. This is a very expressive chapter in a way that. Go, crosses some of his usual boundaries, I think, in part because he's just describing someone else and uh, his admiration for them, which is something he is very capable of doing in quite a lot of words. Um, but I think that he's sort of running up against the fact that he wants to express this idea of God as this unknowable and universal power, or that there's some kind of way in which a person can be closer to that that isn't the same as, um, you know, Christianity or traditional religion, um, which, you know, is a weird and complicated thing to try to express for Ishmael. Yeah, yeah, I think that all makes sense. Yeah. And, yeah, to sort of come full circle, I do find really compelling this idea that uh, sort of seeking out the thing you don't understand or maybe can't even speak of, that there's something in this... Oh, you know, the, the term in literary studies would be the sublime. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. And in a lot of ways, this is just an expression of a deep religious conception of the sublime. Um, and this idea that... I'm sorry, can you hear that train? Sorry about that. Eh, whatever. Um... Trains are not... Trains can be sublime. There's some Turner paintings. But uh, 
this expression of the sublime, and this is more or less a like a, a mission statement for sublimity, for this uh, immense and unfathomable thing, which is also deeply, in some ways, amoral. I mean, Bulkington is killed by it. Um, he, you know, the spray of his ocean perishing is very much a result of his seeking out the landless, uh, indefinite spaces and. I think that's also something very complicated as it continues through the book because, um, again, there's a very large whale that kills people. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's interesting because you're talking about the sort of qualities that, like, let's see, what I mean to say is um, Ishmael does definitely does not believe that the ocean is God or is divine, Right. Um, well, complicated, but I'll, I'll I, give a, a general yes to that. I, the reason I'm claiming that right now is that I, I think that I think that that's sort of like a, a, a tempting but misguided read of this chapter, if that makes sense. Mm, mm-hmm. um, just because, like, uh, like I, I think that, um, like, in the suggestion of asceticism, I think there is like the sort of shadow of like, I guess what I would say, so like this idea that you have to um, like hew away from comfort and like go towards what is dangerous and like hostile to you. Um, mm. That is like, uh, not actually that like unusual of an idea in Christianity. In fact, I think the idea that you sort of have to like, seek out the world's persecution is like a very common Christian mm. idea. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, but in that framing, like the the you know dangers that you face or whatever, because you're like um, not willing to like just be be coddled and avoid like the moral challenges of the world or whatever. Um, like when when you're if someone is is uh, you know trying to be Christ-like and like suffer the slings and arrows of the world, um, that doesn't make the things that are attacking them good or at all like like god right mm-hmm. um so it's 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 like to me i'm i'm looking at this and i'm thinking like okay is is the is like the ocean is the ocean like the the trials of the world that we all have to endure in order to reach heaven. Like, I, I don't think that's really true. Um, but yeah, because I, I, I that's agree. like, I don't... because that's like an available thing, right? That Ishmael is not leaning on. And in fact, is kind of leaning away from. Um, but I don't think he like puts in the effort to make that complete 180, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, what I would say is that I think that on some level, this it's not that it's like opposed to morality or, or complicating. It's that it's deeply amoral in some sense because it's very much like the ocean presenting this image of almost, uh, you know, God within nature or uh, nature as God, which is again a, a major trait in the sublime in literature. This idea of the immense. Um, power and uh, grandeur of um, nature being unutterable, un- almost indescribable, and, uh, you know, some kind of access to something outside of ourselves that is perhaps the divine. 
and again, this is the stuff that will come up later in the book, but I think that on some level, this question of is nature God or is God nature or is, is one a mask of the other um, is a very present one in, this, in, the, in the central narrative of the book, which is, I think, a major reason why this shows up here. And the, the unutterability of it is important because it's not just, I mean, I think one of the most basic claims that that makes, which is present throughout the book, is that God is unutterable. Ishmael's God is never sort of fully explicated. And um, slight spoilers, uh, Starbuck does not manage to prevent everything going down, despite being a much more classically or doctrinaire Christian. I mean, I, I don't really think... I'm not sure what point you're making with that last claim. Like, of course, Starbuck doesn't manage to prevent everything going wrong. Like, that's not... Christian narratives are almost okay. never about, like, people being no, good, but... meaning that there's not evil in the world anymore. Like, okay, that's I, not how it works. The I whole can, idea is that I, there's sin. Okay, I can go into slightly more detail on that. Starbuck is presented as kind of useless. Okay. Like, he, he provide he is, the he comes the closest of anyone to convincing Ahab to stop his relentless and monomaniacal obsession, but he also doesn't really have any way to communicate to Ahab why this is important. The closest he can do is basically represent the Lee Shore, trying to convince him to come back to home, to family, to, to warmth and safety. He can't make a sort of moral or... He can't make a profound argument for these things. He can only represent the Lee Shore and that sort of retreat. And so there's a way in which he comes off as, you know, if not not genuine than kind of hollow or lacking in um, in the kind of deep spiritual conviction or intensity that Ahab and people like Ahab bring to the story. And I think that part of that is that his claims about what is, his claims about God and nature and the relationship between them, which he makes explicitly towards the end, are they're very much sort of in the in one of the standard readings of this book starbucks just straight up right like he's just he is making the reasonable arguments he is saying the reasonable things about society and what people can like thrive under and ahab is just obsessed and ignores him but i think that really ignores how bulkington is you know memorialized here how there's this sense of the unutterable, the sublime, the incredible that Bulkington partakes in and Starbuck really isn't going to. And I, I think that's important because it does speak to a sense, in the book at least, of the divine, of this, this um, unknowability as being kind of outside or maybe opposed to a more uh, religiously moralistic position. Yeah. Yeah, I can hear that. Um, I definitely feel like uh, um, like it almost sounds like what you were suggesting there, and I, I don't think this is quite what you literally meant, um, but it almost sounds like one reading of what you were just saying is that, uh, like, the old, that, um, wow, I'm sorry, I completely forgot what I was trying to say in the middle of saying it. Um, that's okay. okay. Yeah, uh, I'll just, uh, I'll assume it was a truly wonderful sentence because, uh, wonderfulest things are ever the unmentionable. Well, now Eh? I can't edit that Eh? out because you made a joke out of it. God damn it. Sorry. (laughs) No, it's fine. Not a problem. Um, (sighs) 
Yeah, I, I think I have pretty much run out of things to say about this chapter, though. That's fair. It is one page. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> shall we? Uh, wait, wait. I just, I'm just checking to see if there's anything else I want to mention so that we, we can be done with it. Um, I do want to point out that since the book is clearly written after Bulkington's death, like Ishmael is talking to us at a later date, mm-hmm. um, the fact that there's a paragraph directly addressing Bulkington, know ye now, Bulkington, glimpses do ye seem to see of that mortally intolerable truth that all deep earnest thinking is but the intrepid effort, etc., etc. Um, sorry, I, I realized I was just reading it again. Um, but it expressly sort of asks him, and I think that's also important because it's not just saying, you know, now Bulkington knows. It's there's still that that uncertainty because ultimately what's being driven towards is not a single an already determined truth that one is getting closer to. It's a mystery. It's an immense, sublime mystery that is terrifyingly dangerous, but in being so allows one to soar to sort of the heights of um, this sublime experience, this uh, this landlessness and freedom. And yeah, I, I just think it's very, I think it's very cool. I think it really sets up a lot of the themes of the rest of the book and sort of the fact that it happens incredibly briefly. I think Bulkington is maybe mentioned one more time in the entire book, if at all. Um, and it then really only in passing. This is not a person Ishmael knew well. This isn't a Queequeg or a Starbuck or an Ahab. This is uh, an almost uh, completely unknowable figure, yet he's the one who gets this special epitaph and this particular interest in memorializing him at the very start of the Pequod's journey. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think I'm finally out of uh, things to tack against the... uh, against the headwind from the ocean. All right. Uh, so continuing, I'll, I'll uh, do the rest of the summaries. Um, I, something I didn't mention, or something I haven't mentioned yet, but that I, I think is kind of interesting, is that all the chapters um, that we're reading are, are part of this, um, I guess what I would call like a turn away from narrative. Uh, not that this book has totally yeah. had sections in it that weren't narrative sections before. Like there was a, chapter that was a sermon um but i i think that uh there's sort of a, a funny transition uh that that we you know that that the beginning of this section marks um where it's like okay i've been telling you a story about the things queequeg and i were doing and i've been like relating events in a, a you know chronological fashion and now i'm going to stop doing that um and do a bunch of other kinds of writing uh yeah that's yeah of- no that's that's absolutely accurate i think that it's um even when we get back to slightly more uh linear narrative uh the next few sections have a number of weird uh weird bits not to mention we're getting close to cytology yes Uh, but yeah part of the reason i think it's kind of an interesting effect because it it sort of uh what what it does i think is makes it seem like um like, life on the Pequot is kind of timeless. Like, we're out mm. of the period where we're, like, recounting events in sequence and, like, we're keeping track of the days. Now we're just, like, on the Pequod and we're talking about things that are generally relevant to the Pequod. 
Um, yeah, I definitely think that a large, and this is something that, that ends. There's a, especially the last section of the book gets more and more linear and direct. Um, so I think you're totally right that there's this period of like normal life on the Pequod that isn't necessarily that long in terms of, uh, internal sort of, uh, sujet time in the book, but that is, um, extended by all of these asides and achronological descriptions of characters and, uh, you know, treatises on the biology of whales. If this were a, a TV show, this would be where all the episodic episodes go. Um, Oof. You know, like, I, this is the... I don't mean that as a criticism. I mean, like... <laughs> no, I, I just... I was immediately like, ah, yes, the Pequod filler episodes that fans complain about. I mean, but it's like, you know, that... <laughs> That is that is what the people often complain about cytology and like uh, the whiteness of the whale and all of these other um, particular bits. Yeah. So, uh, so in connection with what I was just saying and what I kind of suggested earlier, the next chapter, chapter twenty four, is titled "The Advocate," uh, and it's basically a defense of whaling. Um, well, not not in the way that you'd think in like a modern context. It's whale. No one's no one's advocating for the whales here, and yes, in fact, no one's really. Everyone sort of recognizes that it's an important industry. Yeah, it's it's what he's defending whaling against is the general public opinion that it's like dirty and low class and like just you know not an impressive thing to do with your life. Uh, um, he's he's not defending it against like. I guess, sort of real moral problems with the industry. Uh, I'm not even sure that the idea that you would like look at an industry of commerce and say like, this is morally wrong is, I mean, I'm not saying it's like a a concept that couldn't possibly have occurred to Ishmael, but it just doesn't seem like the kind of argument that he would make or think about. Certainly not about whaling. Yes, certainly not about whaling. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I, like I can I can imagine him arguing that a particular profession is like is is bad or unholy in some sense, but frankly, he's way too positive about everything. Yeah, that's kind of what I meant. Is like I I just yeah. don't see I just don't see Ishmael like ooh that but mm, that's almost not true because uh, he specifically um, is negative about soldiers in this chapter. Well, in that, like low key ways. I mean that's true, but like. Like, that's kind of exactly what I was saying, though, is that he'll criticize something, but he doesn't, he, he's not, criticizing a profession isn't, in his, like, way of talking about it, in any way meant to imply that it, like, should stop existing, or that he, like, thinks it could, mm. sh- could stop existing. Like, that's, mm-hmm. that's why, because the immediate comparison with, like, a modern idea of a criticism of whaling, like, if someone is criticized, I mean... Okay, I think whaling, qua whaling, is in fact, like, illegal now. Um, Mostly. Um, well, internationally, yes. And then some some countries, specifically, I know Japan insists on doing it uh, for cultural reasons. But then they can't actually sell the meat because nobody wants to eat whale meat, even in Japan. Um, because it's not actually very good. Uh, and they don't use the oil for anything. So it's it's a cultural institution, as far as I understand it. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, um, it's it, it it's a shitty situation, frankly, and I'm sure many people involved on in it in various ways are unhappy about it. Okay, I I know nothing about this, so I'm like actually slightly hesitant to condemn it. But uh, yeah, but uh, I I mean I'm 
I am perfectly willing to condemn whaling in a general sense. I am not willing to say that I fully understand why it is a thing that continues under uh, certain auspices. I am, however, uh, willing to point out that nobody's eating the whale meat because that's, like, a weird and grim fact. Yes. Um, but yeah, uh, so, like, the, the point is, like, I think if a, if a modern person were to say, like, I'm going to criticize an entire industry or defend an entire industry, I think it would be with the idea of, like, oh, maybe this is something that simply shouldn't be done at all. Mm, um, yeah, and I, I, I just don't money. think that's a way of thinking about whaling that Ishmael has. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so what he, what he's, the, the actual, um, you know, uh, bad opinions about whaling that he's trying to answer here um, are things like, I mean, I said that, that, that it's dirty and that it's not uh, impressive. And um, he, he, he starts out with um, a comparison of whaling to soldiering on several points. So, like, you know, soldiering is also very, like, being in war is also very dirty. Um, and uh, he also says, you know, people call whalers butchers, but soldiers are also butchers. Um, and so, like, his, his point here basically is to say, like, okay, everyone loves soldiers and thinks they're very impressive, uh, but nobody thinks that, like, whalers are impressive for risking their lives just as much. Um, uh, oh, actually, on, on that point, and tying back into the previous uh, chapter, um, when he's sort of comparing the, the bravery of whalers to the bravery of soldiers, he specifically says, for what are the comprehensible terrors of man compared with the interlinked terrors and wonders of God? To explain why a whale is much more interesting and scary than getting shot. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, oh, one one bit that I uh, thought was... He, he, he also claims that, um, you know, whaling can't be... You can't scoff at whaling because everyone uses whale oil to, like, light their homes. Um, he specifically makes a claim that I feel like would actually be something we could probably look up. That... Almost all the tapers, lamps, and candles that burn around the globe uh, are made from whale oil, he's suggesting. Um, and that specifically says burn as before so many shrines to our glory. So he's really getting into this. Yes. I mean, that. yes. I. But the point that I was trying to make is just, like, I wonder whether he's right. Like, did, did the entire world's lighting depend that heavily on whaling at this time? I it suspect that in England and America it may well have. Whale oil was a huge hugely was a huge industry and uh an immense amount of uh you know early fuel was based on it um actually i i wrote a paper for a grad school thing this semester where i did look up like uh different kinds of oils that would have been used in the lamps that provided lamp black for the painter Turner, who actually came up earlier uh, when he was painting things, because I wanted to argue that there was bits of whale in the whales he painted. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, and the, the short version is almost certainly yes. Um, the uh, a whale, An oil lamp during that period that was using like a decent burning oil for light, and but not like, um, not a gas lamp which used coal gas, was quite likely to be using whale oil in England, in uh, the U.S., and I think probably in a lot of Europe. I don't know about the rest of the world. Yeah, so that's... I think that his parochialism is certainly um, a large part of that claim. Yeah. Uh, so let's see, to go through the rest of his arguments, just kind of quickly, he also um, 
talks about just like how huge the whale trade is and uh, the obvious effort that various countries have gone to in order to participate in it. Um, so, you know, further, further claiming that like whaling is, you know, important since it's obviously like worth this. Um, and then uh, he spends a couple paragraphs talking about how um, whaling ships have been at the forefront of American and European exploration of the world and like opening it to trade. Um, which is, oh, yeah. And he, he, uh, that, that he goes into like a fair bit of detail about, um, and it's, uh, first of all, I I don't know, you know, how, how much of he, 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 he makes a lot of claims about like famous explorers, um, and like, uh, names that I think his, uh, readers probably would have recognized, but, uh, that we don't really recognize anymore because... 19th century world travel narratives are no longer as popular as they were. Um, yeah, Cruz and Stern is the one that I just sort of went, I I don't know who this is. Cook and Vancouver, I can I can uh, remember who Cook is. I can, I'm pretty sure Vancouver uh, sailed around Canada a bunch, but um, like around the edges of Canada. But now that I'm saying that, I just sound super American, so I don't know. Well, anyhow, um, the point being that he he's like, oh, whalers were there be- first and went to places that these explorers never went to. And I'm like, well, I don't know if that's true, but he's certainly not wrong that, uh, you know, the the global whaling trade was a big part of colonialism, uh, which, which it's interesting that um, he's trying to talk about, like, you know, I mentioned the idea that he also praises whaling for like opening places to trade, uh, which Mm -hmm. that itself, I almost feel, I mean, that's such a, like, uh, you know, Oh yeah, that was that was the fundamental like colonial move for this place has a like a a state or has has opinions on things, but let's convince them to trade with us and eventually we will own them. Right. Um but like it's very clear that uh he thinks that I guess um you know the the uh the type of colonial interaction like it seems like he doesn't like it when uh Spain actually owns colonies in the US or not in the US in in yeah. the Americas. Um, yeah. Uh, but, but he thinks it's great when, like, you know, uh, whaling ships, like, go around the world and, like, you know, spread European yeah, influence. Yeah, he's, he's presenting, well, he's presenting this very sort of, this romanticized image of the age of exploration where it's fundamentally, and I think, you know, Ishmael and Melville genuinely believed in this to some, well, I don't know what Melville genuine belie- genuinely believed, evidence would seem to point this way from what little I've read. Uh, believed in the sense of well, we should have a you know global community. We should have connect. We should meet other people, and their ideas and our ideas should come together. We should uh, um, assimilate them, and our, their unique cultural and technological achievements will be added to our own. Um, but sorry, uh, but Whoa. the um, I, I don't get it. Were you... It's the Borg. Oh, it's the Borg. Oh, line. right. Duh. Uh, I, but... That's actually very embarrassing that I didn't get that. I'm supposed to be a bigger Star Trek fan than you. Uh, you are, you are. I just, the, the like, handful of Star Trek things I know well enough to quote are the handful of Star Trek things I know well enough to quote. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, You've got a lot more of those to sort through. He, in his, uh, uh, like, hyperbolic, you know, uh, assigning of, like, glorious feats to whalers, um, he also uh, suggests that maybe whalemen had something to do with, uh, quote, the liberation of Peru, Chile, and Bolivia from the yoke of old Spain. Uh, 
which Simon Bolivar actually really interested in whaling apparently. Yeah, like that that part I'm just like, okay, okay Melville like or not who knows what Melville's trying to do, but okay Ishmael. Um Yep, also the establishment of the eternal democracy in those parts. Um I'm just going to point out that given when this book was written, that's not as depressing a sentence. It's just in retrospect that that gets super depressing. I mean, uh the American century has not yet happened. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's there's certainly a very, like, uh, you know, um, like, it, it I, I think, you know, basically, uh, what we can say is that he thinks, like, you know, English and, like, English-speaking colonization is good, and... I mean, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's necessarily, like, English, like, the British Empire, even. I think that it's, I think it's very much a new world. I mean, we'll, we'll get into a bunch more colonialism over the next chapter, I so. mean, he also but, says this thing about Australia, right? Like, um, he definitely thinks it's a good thing that, he calls it that now mighty colony. Um, I don't think he thinks it's at all a bad thing mm, that England owns Australia. That's... That is fair, but I do think that he has this sense of sort of that a new world, I mean, an American imperialist vision that doesn't really think of itself as imperialist in the same way as the British, in which the new world uh, and newly explored places can be brought into this web of trade. They're, you know, we'll share our democracy, we'll spread our idea of how society should be run. And it is an imperialism, and it is ultimately a colonialism, even if he's not necessarily recognizing it as such. But I think that there's a strong sense of, like, Americanism. And I I agree that Australia doesn't quite uh, fit within that um, framework. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately what we're seeing here is that, you know, uh, he simply does not approach this with the same, like, theoretical structures that we do, right? Um, Yeah, yeah, no, I... I just think that I do think that there's a certain kind of American American colonialism that is very that is still around, which is very much the we shall spread democracy by making sure that your markets are open. Yes. Um. Uh, which, to be fair, Britain also used that rhetoric even while being a you know monarchical parliamentarian empire. So uh, the human mind can hold many contradictions. Right. Uh, he then, after he's uh, gone on with all this stuff about, uh, you know, all the stuff we just talked about, um, the the end of the chapter, he kind of um, lists what he imagines some further counter-arguments might be, um, which I, I don't think I really need to go into every single one of these, uh, but, you know, all sorts of uh, things that he imagines people might say, mean things he imagines people might say about whaling. Um yeah, yeah. These these ones are much more like, oh, it's not impressive. No, no famous author has ever cared about these, and it's all very like gotchas. Like, no famous author. Well, Job in the Book of Job mentions Leviathan. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it is. <laughs> what <laughs> God wrote the Bible? Are you saying God's not a famous author? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and I I, I think uh, the the end of it. Is that uh, the last bit that I think is is worth mentioning? Is that he um, his way of wrapping all this up is to say that you know if I ever find any kind of glory in the world, uh, it belong all of it uh, can be ascribed to whaling. Um, like I, I was, I I learned to be who I am on a whale ship, uh, but yep. it's also like with a sort of implication that he 
you know, hopes maybe his name will be, uh, like, remembered after his death, but he also doesn't particularly mm-hmm. believe that it will be. Um, uh, he, he refers to the idea of people finding, like, manuscripts in his desk after his death, uh, and the people he imagines doing this are my executors, or more properly, my creditors. So he's like, he Oof. doesn't actually believe that, you know, he's going to leave a will and have, like, family who will inherit it. He knows he's going to die in penury. Um, which is certainly, I mean, this this little, like, uh, thing about manuscripts being found after his death is definitely, you know, a little, a little eerie, uh, given that I, I believe that is pretty much how this book was received, or... Wait, no, 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 I'm no, no. wrong. You're, there's it was totally others, published there's during others, his life, sorry. I, I, yeah, it was, and it just, it did not do well during his lifetime. Um, what you're thinking, I think what you're thinking of is a combination of the fact that he did get very popular briefly, and then when he got more experimental, Melville sort of fell out of general knowledge. But he was a popular writer before Moby Dick, and... Uh, but then the the thing that I think you're thinking of as eerie is that much later, Moby Dick was rescued from almost vanishing from literary history, at least so the story goes, when it was found, uh, basically it got shelved as a book on cytology, like just with a weird frame narrative around mm-hmm. it, and preserved by a number of libraries, and then someone rediscovered it, uh, decided it was a great American novel and started pushing for it, and that's how we eventually got the you know, uh, universal recognition of the white whale that we have today. Yeah, yeah. That that is basically what I was thinking about. Is is the thing where um, you know Moby Dick uh, achieved much greater prominence at a point like much long after Melville's death. Um, yeah. Uh, but you're right. It wasn't actually the situation of like manuscript published posthumously or something like that. Um. <clears throat> all right. So yeah, that that is. Uh, the advocate. Mm-hmm. There's there's one other thing I wanted to mention from the advocate, but uh, just in terms of um, history not quite working out the way it's written here, uh, when he says that uh, he thinks that Japan is going to be open to the West by whalemen. Oh yeah. Uh, nope. That that nope. that's not what happened. That, but yeah, he does he does not what happened. He, he clearly uh, you know he he says that like he thinks that's how it will happen if and when it does. Um. Yep, it is the whale ship alone to whom the credit will be due. It's like, whale ship, gun ship, kind of different things. Urgh. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, you know, he's he's definitely factually wrong on a number of points that are that were established facts at the time he was writing. Also true. So, like, perhaps we should criticize him for those more than for his failure to predict the future. Oh, but I wanted to dunk on Mel, <laughs> But yes, the the post. Yes, so the next chapter is even shorter than uh, um, the Lee Shore was, uh, and it's titled Postscript. Um, It's just one last argument in favor of whaling, uh, and he separates this out because he thinks it's an educated guess rather than a fact. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I just, we were just like, wow, he's really making some predictions and stuff here, and then this is the one. Now, this is the doubtful one. Yes, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, he, the, the way he presented is like, well, you know, um, an, uh, what is he, an advocate who should wholly suppress a not unreasonable surmise, uh, which might tell eloquently upon his cause, uh, would he not be blameworthy? So he's, he's basically saying like, oh, well, you know, uh, if, if, I, if I failed to bring this up when I'm trying to defend my point, I, I would be, you know, like... Failing my argument. Remiss. I, 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 I'd, you know, I'd be yeah. a bad lawyer. Um, 
but it's very funny that this is the only one that he considers <laughs> to be a not unreasonable surmise when he literally in the last chapter talked about what might happen in the future. Um, yep. Anyway, his his surmise uh, is that the oil used in anointing heads of state uh, at um, at coronations, like monarchs, not just heads of state, is whale oil, in his opinion. Um, which, uh, I... I didn't look it up yeah, either. damn, we really should have. Uh, but, um... Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I have no idea whether that's something that would be recorded or something Melville could have known. I, I'm really not sure. Yeah, I, I guess I don't actually care that much about whether or not it's the case that the <laughs> oil with which the kings and queens of England were anointed was whale oil. Um, this is also uh, in this very brief chapter. I mean, y- y- you could make some very immature jokes about sperm, Assetti. Jesus. Uh, yeah, he also, I mean, he does make some kind of, not like like dirty jokes, but definitely kind of immature uh, jokes here in that he says, uh, he, he like, um, he, he just sort of like speculates on like what the purpose of anointing is. Uh, oh, right. Uh, yeah. Certain I am that a king's head is solemnly oiled at his coronation, even as a head of salad. Um, can it be, though, that they anoint it with a view of making its interior run well as they anoint machinery? Uh, so he's like, hmm, kings are cabbages. Or maybe they're machines that need to be oiled to run properly? Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, the the mild but consistent anti-monarchism Specifically European monarchies. He's he's really on board with Queequeg uh, being, like, a prince. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I would imagine that, like, he sort of views... Well, I mean... Yeah, I was about to say something about, like, maybe he views monarchy as, like, you know, a, a thing of the past that needs to be, like, moved past. And then, like, he has this, like, appreciation for Queequeg as someone who is kind of antique- um, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure I really have uh, enough evidence to back up that claim, so just consider it as speculation. Um, a, a not unreasonable I mean, surmise. <laughs> you, you know, one of you, you would be remiss as an advocate for Queequeg if you didn't make it. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's the postscript. Uh, I think that's really all there is to say about that. Uh, and... Now, uh, chapter 26, which is called Knights and Squires. Um, this is the first of two chapters which have the same title, uh, and they're both, like, devoted to sort of character studies or, or descriptions of the crew of the Pequod. Um, Can I just complain that there are two chapters called Knights and Squires? The first one is about one metaphorical knight, and then the next one is about actual, like, plural knights and squires. Yeah. And they're called the same thing, and I just... It is honestly... Melville, what are you doing? I think deciding to name two consecutive chapters the same thing is a mind-boggling choice. Um, Like, (laughs) it's... uh, I, I am... It seems virtually impossible that this hasn't resulted in like at some point in this book's publication history one of these two chapters being deleted under the assumption that it was like uh a copy uh, like a misprint yeah, exactly um wow that would oh fuck that would really I, yeah i know that would be very confusing I, that would cause problems uh so the first chapter as you said it's all about starbuck uh, who is the first mate 
Um, which means... And I'm reasonably certain uh, is not um, who Starbucks the coffee place is named after, but I can't say that, like, possibly. Oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure... Oh, I used to know where they got the name for that coffee chain, and it's not this, but I don't remember. Um, Damn. I would have... That would have been funny yeah, to me. Yeah, I think it... Maybe it was a racehorse? No. Anyway, that doesn't matter. Really? Uh, okay. The, but yeah, so... Uh, so Starbuck is the first mate, um, which, right, that means that he is, like, the second in command under Ahab, right? Effectively, yes. Uh, the first mate is, uh, yeah, in many ways, the sort of the leader of the rest of the crew, um, whereas the captain has a sort of significant distinction from the rest right. of the crew. Uh, and Starbuck is uh, a Nantucket Quaker, just like the three captains. Um uh, there's some physical description of him. He's, like, tall and thin. And Ishmael... Se- He's also, quote, long and earnest, which is just an amazing description. And Ishmael seems to think that um, that Starbuck's, like, physical composition is such that he can survive in all climates because he's, like, dried up and condensed. Um yeah, that's that's literally the phrase, the condensation of the man. He's like, he's thin and wiry, but he's not unhealthy looking. He's like, he's very spare and almost ascetic, but is also very healthy and robust at the same yeah, time. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I feel like I have a very clear mental image of what he looks like after reading this, but I also think it's very strange that Ishmael believes that on account of his like physical shape, He's, like, adaptable to weather. Um, Hey, you know what's fun about these two chapters? Oh. Physiognomy. (laughs) We'll get to the next chapter when we get to it. Oof. Um, So, uh, in terms of uh, his personality, um, I would say he's, Ishmael describes him as being, like, tough, serious, and reliable, um, and uh, accustomed to danger. Um, Although the question of, like, whether he's brave is kind of... I guess I would say, like, this, the latter part of this chapter is, like, extremely anxious about um, Starbucks' bravery slash cowardice. Yeah, I think the question of Starbucks' virtues, you know, I mentioned that he sort of stands in in a lot of ways for a certain kind of Christian temperance, a certain kind of self-control and recognition. So the question of whether his desire to return to safety and I mean, spoilers, he doesn't think they should be pursuing the white whale. Um, so he's he's the voice of reason in some ways. And there's a sense in which I think that there's this question of, is that cowardice or is it... it what is the difference between cowardice and caution would be the phrase yeah. I use. Um, and so I think like the major, the major sense that I get from his, his talking about this is that... Uh, like the... That, um, that leaving aside the question of whether it's cowardice or bravery, the thing that could be said, like, relatively impartially is that Starbuck is more cautious than other whalers. Um, so yes. many of whom are wildly incautious. Um, yes. And, uh, Ishmael has kind of this idea that, um, you know, uh, that actually Starbuck, because he's someone who has lost family to whaling... Um, and because he's kind of superstitious, uh, therefore the fact that he's even here at all 
shows that he has to be really brave uh, because it's like overcoming this sort of, um, you know, handicap, uh, which is... I, I think I read it very differently, but please Okay, um, well, no, I mean, that's, that's sort of... Let, let me get to the, the, the actual line yeah, that I was course. thinking about that I read that way, and let's um, talk about it. Yeah, so uh, the, the, the sentence that I was thinking about is, The courage of this Starbuck, which could nevertheless still flourish, must indeed have been extreme. Um, which to me sounded like what he's saying is basically Starbuck has an enormous reserve of natural courage, which he needs because most of it is like, uh, you know, uh, most of it is sort of countered by the, like, awareness he has of how dangerous whaling is and his, like, superstitiousness. Yeah, yeah I think... I think it's hmm. my take on this, and this is just in this chapter. I think that either of these uh, sort of approaches to this is works for any you know spoiler stuff. So I, I'm not trying to uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to argue. Oh, I know more about Starbuck, therefore I don't think that applies here at all. Um, but I think that uh, there's this phrase. Um, uh, uh, it was not in nature that these things, the the you know the the deaths of his brother and father in whaling, the um, uh, the superstitiousness and so on. It is not in nature that these things should fail in latently engendering an element in him which, under suitable circumstances, would break out from its confinement and burn all his courage up. I think it's the way I read it is that he's presented as a very, I mean, fundamentally brave because. Uh, Anyone who goes out and fights whales for a living has to be almost suicidally courageous. Um, but that his bravery has a kind of flaw. The um, the other phrase that you see here is, if at times these things bent the welded iron of his soul. Um, so there's this sense that his, his, uh, his courage occasionally sort of crumples or breaks down. I think it's specifically important that it's the phrase... Um, Talks about how he's, you know, totally courageous in the face of whales, in the face of um, uh, ordinary irrational horrors of the world, as it as the book puts it. But he can't, yet cannot withstand those more terrific because more spiritual terrors, which sometimes menace you from the concentrating brow of an enraged and mighty man. There's the sense that Starbuck has a lot of courage and calm and control when it comes to whaling, but there's some situations in which that is going to desert him or he won't be able to sort of uh, hold up his his will. Um, and I think that's, an in, that's slightly different from the idea that Starbuck is uh, so naturally courageous, but there's some things that like where... I think that's also present. I just think that sort of... That, that idea of the flaw in his courage, the that there's something that he cannot overcome in that way, the way he can overcome the more standard terrors of the deep. Uh, I think that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, and and um, and and uh, it's, it's. I also think the 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 version, the sort of perspective on this that you were just bringing out, definitely, um, like, makes a lot of sense. Also, with uh, these, the I guess this is the yeah the second to last paragraph where he's basically alluding to um, something that might happen in the future with Starbuck, um, the idea that he might. Um, you know, I, I think what he's suggesting is 
Uh, at some point, Starbuck's courage is going to fail him. Um, but if it were, like, total, like, if Starbuck completely fell in some sense, um, then it would be just, like, too depressing for Ishmael to write. Um, yes. Which is, uh, I mean, that's, that's a bold claim, uh, that something would be, like, too upsetting for Ishmael to write about it. Um, (laughs) yeah, I mean, he does sort of explain why he finds that concept and I, uh, so upsetting. And I think it, it fits with his general desire to present people in a positive light. Um, he has this phrase, uh, men may seem detestable as joint stock companies and nations, knaves, fools, and murderers there may be. Men may have mean and meager faces, but man in the ideal is so noble and so sparkling, such a grand and glowing creature that over any ignominious blemish in him, all his fellows should run to throw their costliest robes. And I mean... Ishmael doesn't have a lot of costly robes, but he certainly has the ability to present people in the narrative in a positive light. And he sort of is arguing that he wants to present everyone involved in the best possible light out of a love for humanity as a whole. I mean, very masculine uh, phrasing and approach here. But um, he, he ties this to a sort of religious sense of democracy that is very different from that sort of religious, quasi-religious sublimity we saw earlier, where he says, you know, um, I mean, literally, he says uh, uh, something that I feel like we should have the international playing in the background. Thou shalt see it shining in the arm that wields a pick or drives a spike, that democratic dignity which on all hands radiates without end from God himself, the great God absolute, the center and circumference of all democracy, his omnipresence, our divine equality. And like, Ishmael's really head up. Yeah, no, it's true. Although it's interesting because he's making this claim about, um, you know, our divine equality and, and, and like the brotherhood of man. And, and he's kind of talking mm-hmm. about like the dignity of common people, um, which, you know, he implies Starbuck has and he doesn't want to like kind of yes. tarnish. Um, but I think there's also kind of like a, a competing idea here that... Um, that Starbuck isn't just, like, an ordinary person, he's kind of a hero. And so, like, for him mm, to fall yeah. would be, like, a great tragedy. Um, which which is... And, and like, I think the, um, you know, the, the, the resolution between this is in what he says in the last paragraph, where he's talking about, like, uh, that, that what he's doing in this story is, like, uh, ascribing... Um, you know, glory to people that are generally viewed as being, you know, unimpressive, inglorious. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, no, I, I really like these two paragraphs, even if they have a real dark bit at the end. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, well, it's interesting because he's, what he's talking about here uh, in, in the, like, part of what he's talking about here is, is I guess, what I would call, like, the, um, oh, Damn it. I can't remember the name of the, like, Roman who I always think of as the sort of, like, or example of this trope. But, you know, the idea of the, like, um, Cincinnatus. The idea of, like, the the, the noble commoner who, like, leaves his field to go, like, win the war and, like, has the greatest of all the virtues, but also is, like, so humble. Um, Yeah, yeah. The, um, can I... 
take a bit of a digression to explain a very silly thing in which this became like an internet what? point. What? Okay. So, do you remember Conservapedia? Um, <laughs> oh, uh, God, yes, that's... broadly speaking, I do. <laughs> okay, the short version is this. They're a far-right uh, person. Um, the son of a much more successful far-right person uh, created a conservative version of Wikipedia because Wikipedia was far too leftist for him and far too uh, opposed to his worldview by presenting, you know, more or less historical fact in some cases. Uh, however, one of the things is that he got really mad about credential stuff when people were, for example, telling him, hey, you're claiming that all of modern math is like a postmodern nightmare and experts don't know anything, and you're having it edited by, like, your um, your literal homeschool class as an assignment. Are you sure you have this a good position to be doing this. And so he got really obsessed with this idea of the best of the commons, as he put it. This idea that if that people who have like expertise or credentials or are, are in any way sort of drawn up or educated or prepared for a task are fundamentally not going to be as good as the best of the broad set of people who are not particularly experts or trained. First of all, it creates this bizarre dichotomy where as soon as someone gets any training in something, they can no longer be a common person or representative of that commons. And secondly, it's much more about uh, a very sort of, well, an Andrew Jackson-style uh, sort of nationalist populism where the, this, the broad base of people is cared about in the specific of individuals who are pulled out of it not so much for the average person, really. And I don't think Ishmael's doing that, but I think there's a hint of it here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, like, what I would say is that in, in these last two paragraphs, he's doing something that is genuinely kind of novel in the second to last one, um, with the way that he's, uh, you know, um, or not necessarily novel, but but something that is genuinely... I guess, um, Ishmael-y to me, uh, yeah, like yeah. the, 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 um, those, those, those bits that you quoted earlier about, um, democratic dignity radiating from God and all that. That's like mm -hmm. our, our good old Ishmael, like, yes, weird mysticism that's, stuff. Um, but that's extremely Ishmael's brand of extremely american mysticism yes but then like in the last paragraph i think he's uh you know he, he explicitly he cites a bunch of um examples of this you know idea of uh heroes drawn from among the common people um his his three examples of this are uh uh the preacher john bunyan um who wrote pilgrim's progress uh, Cervantes, who wrote Don Quixote, and Andrew Jackson. Uh, yep. Which is... Who did a genocide. <laughs> yes. Um, which, Ooh. I mean, okay. First of all, yeah, obviously, uh, Ishmael thinks Andrew Jackson is good, and we don't. Um, but I also think it's kind of interesting that uh, his, his first two examples of, like, you know, heroes of the common people are authors. Um, yeah. It, it's sort of like... Uh, I think, like, if, if there's anything that isn't just kind of pure, um, like, stock image in this last paragraph, it is that, because it's, like, suggesting a little bit that maybe he wants himself to be viewed in that way as well. Mm, yeah. 
I, he, I, he is certainly asking uh, pretty explicitly, he says, uh, if I shall touch that workman's arm with some ethereal light, you know, um, talking about the, his description of the common people in this book and how he tries to give them, uh, quote, uh, I shall hereafter ascribe high qualities, though dark, weave round them tragic graces. Um, and like, I really, I appreciate the, the aesthetic goal there to at the same time tell a story about people I mean, not to put a too fine a point on it, fucking up in some truly tremendous ways. He wants to present them as fundamentally sort of meaningful, important, and valuable people. Um, and I think that this, if we take that seriously, it does speak to a lot of the really confused and confusing um, treatment of, for example, people of color in these books, where at the same time he is uh, dichotomizing the world into civilized and uncivilized in order to make claims about it. But he really wants to also present each individual person as a representative of humanity. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And, you know, he doesn't always succeed at this, to be clear. Also, I'm looking at this again, and I think maybe I'm kind of misread uh, his, like, list of, of, uh, of people. Um, because uh, I think that he might actually... Like, for one thing, I think Cervantes was a nobleman, <laughs> so I, I don't think uh, that can be uh, sort of brought into the, like, Cincinnatus narrative. Um, yeah, I mean, he's... Uh, I think... He's, his phrase is, I think, the stumped and paupered arm of old Cervantes, so he's presenting Cervantes like an unlikely person to do such things. Yeah, so I think what he's actually doing is, with the first two, with the references to Bunyan and Cervantes, I think what he's saying is, like, God, you know, like, grant me, like, literary skill. Uh, yes. You know, give, give me the same um, spark that you gave these people uh, who were, in some way, like, not someone you'd think would write well. Um, uh, but then, uh, like, because, um, yeah, I think... And he's also, he's also, I think, specifically saying that it's because his goals aesthetically align with theirs. There's this sense of, um, you know, he's, he's, this is in the context of saying that he wants to exalt the, the common people he's describing. And then also he's asking um, these, uh, you know, um, that against all mortal critics bear me out in it, thou just spirit of equality, which has spread one royal mantle of humanity over all my kind. Bear me out in it, thou great democratic god, who didst not refuse to the swart convict Bunyan the pale poetic pearl. I think he's, to some extent, saying, God, let me be great in representing them because I am allied with your goals the same way that they were. And so I think that maybe the thing going on with Jackson is that Jackson's almost being presented as like these authors for his sort of, uh, for his populist uh, politics. Mm. Yeah, okay. I could hear that. Like, it, it's possible that the reason Jackson is uh, being presented in this set is that he's arguing that the thing that is good about Jackson is his... Um, aggrandizement of uh, the commonality. Again, you know, populism in its most... Uh, kind of egregious American form. And I don't know if that's meant to be ironic, but it does certainly give me pause from going, yeah, I love democracy, and also the, you know, the exaltation of the common person. Give me more of that. Ooh, oh boy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, this is ultimately, like, like, okay, um, uh, this is not the, the only problem with 
praising Andrew Jackson, obviously, but but a problem yes. that I think is made very clear here is that um, it's not actually like democratic to like exalt and celebrate heroes. Um, but I think that Ishmael is extremely invested in the idea of like heroic figures, and what he wants to do is like present, you know, quote unquote, like low people as those. Um, he's not interested. Yeah, I mean, he's not interested in a narrative that isn't about like heroic, tragic figures. That's not what he's trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that there is a, a fundamental disagreement between democracy and heroic stories. Um, I think he actually puts forward a pretty good argument for how one can have both a heroic narrative and a democratic ethos. I just think that. Andrew Jackson there makes it really complicated how he's particularly calling on that or doing that. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I would say is that I think, like, um, as a, you know, as much more than a Democrat, okay, I don't mean that, as much more than someone who simply believes in quote-unquote democracy as, as a communist, I would say that, like, narratives about individual heroes, especially as having, like, as being important because they have, like, high virtues. Like, I think that is incompatible with my understanding of, like, what is important and powerful and admirable about, you know, the people or working class. Um, obviously, Ishmael is coming at this from a completely different angle than I am, and I'm, I'm not interested in, like, trying to cancel him for not having my political perspective. Um, but I do think that, like... Uh, I think there is a real tension between claiming sort of um, universal celebration of humanity, but focusing your attention on the idea of, like, individual heroes, I guess. Um, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that I think that the way Ishmael's trying to sort of, um, I mean... To some extent, I don't think that's necessarily plays out in this book in which someone like Ahab exists who is intentionally presented as being this truly unusual person. In fact, I think the reason this is being discussed in the context of Starbuck is that Starbuck is supposed to be a lot more normal than a lot of the people in play here, a lot more sort of standard or common. But um, I do think that you can, in the individual present or like in the individual who is not presented as being you know a unique and world-shaking heroic figure but rather one among many there's a you know pretty significant history of attempting to present the struggles and individual experiences of members of the working class for example as fundamentally valuable and heroic by aggrandizing sort of individual fictional examples and i think that is in many ways what uh Ishmael is talking about here. Yeah. Albeit, again, from a very different framework. I, I think that, like, I guess what I would say is, is that, um, like, the, the the thing, the sticking point for me here, to some extent, is, is the idea of, like, nobility and high virtue. Like, that's still something that's very important to Ishmael. Um, like, Ishmael clearly believes in great men, and I don't. Right. I mean, I I don't think that virtue implies that, though, because you can have just someone who is 
Like, if you want to talk, I mean, first of all, there's a long history of people talking about the sort of collective virtues of the working class, the sort of virtues that an average person in the working class expresses or has, where it doesn't require them to be a, you know, standout and, uh, you know, incredible person. And, you know, it doesn't even require them to be, and it certainly doesn't require them to be at the crux of historical events, but merely is saying that, oh, the average person does actually have more of these virtues than, uh, than is often admitted, or the average person has these virtues that are not recognized. Yeah, no, that's fair. Like, I, I, I'm i using the word virtue here and not, like, you know, like, moral goodness or something to refer to specifically the idea of kind of, like, like, personal excellence that is both, like, I guess, moral and practical, which I think is, is tends to be united in this idea of heroes, right? It's not just that they're good people, but it's also that they are great and, and, and do great things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, achieve glory. Um, anyway, yeah. Uh, it, it, it Basically, I, I just think that, um, like, uh, like, on some level, I don't think Ishmael is actually convinced that meanest mariners and renegades and castaways are actually, like, uh, like, I don't think he believes that they are better than average people, or even... I think he honestly might believe that they kind of are worse. It's just that he also wants to depict them heroically. Or at least that seems to be what he's expressing right now, if that makes sense. Because mm. he's not yeah. hes not saying... I mean, he was uh, last... or two chapters ago... Kind of saying, like, you know, no, uh, whalers are, like, important and glorious and heroic. Um, but right now, he's kind of saying, like, I don't know, he's saying something that feels, like, adjacent, but not identical to me? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to some extent he's saying that he thinks that the average mariner, the sort of the, you know, the standard mariner is, in fact, uh, a lot more sort of interesting, heroic, and worth being the center of a story than uh, a lot of people would assume, and that this is part of that sort of general argument that people all have these um, have these qualities, that this is a, there's, there are general qualities here, and mariners in particular deserve more social recognition for these qualities. Yeah, all right. That makes sense but, to me. Yeah, I, I don't know. Well, I feel, uh, I think, I can't think of anything else I'd be happy to move on. No, I, I think we've sort of burned ourselves out on those two chat, those two paragraphs. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I will mention um, one thing about Starbuck that didn't come up, but that uh, I think is worth keeping in mind, is that he's also noted as having um, a young cape wife and child. Oh, yeah. Uh, which, and that, um, so he has not just uh, family who were killed at sea, but also family who remain that he's uh, supporting and t- to come back to. Um and he also has this, this there's also this phrase, uh, For, thought Starbuck, I am here in this critical ocean to kill whales for my living, and not to be killed by them for theirs. Yes. Uh, it's his perspective on whales, despite the fact that uh, one of them killed his, you know, that, uh, quote, What doom was his own father's? Where in the bottomless deeps could he find the torn limbs of his brother? Uh, despite that, he doesn't have any sense of, personification or revenge towards the whales. Mm. Um, 
as you know, uh, common knowledge of this book will point to uh, Ahab does not agree on that particular count. Yes. But um, it's also it is kind of interesting. I mean, you know, I, I guess like on some level, this is just a sort of logical thing that would happen um, because lots of these sailors would have like wives and children. But uh, it is interesting that Ahab also has like a young wife and child, right? Um, yes. Uh, but that's the yeah. Um, I think that it's. I wouldn't say that it's like stated all that clearly, but I, I do think one has to imagine that their relationships with their family are very different. Yeah, I mean, it might be. I, I will say that I feel like the young wife and child more or less just sort of exist off screen, so to speak, to like like a lodestone on the land to pull them back in. Yeah. Like, there, there's very little discussion of what actual relationships one can have with as a sailor with you know family on shore and i think to some extent ishmael just doesn't find that question compelling because he doesn't have one and possibly doesn't want one yeah okay so uh the second knights and squires chapter uh is about about the entire rest of the crew um uh, well, the entire rest of the the mates. Yeah, and, and there's a much larger crew beyond. Yeah, that. well, yes, he doesn't go through every member of the crew, but he kind of like he describes the mates and uh, the harpooners, and then he kind of like gives a vague overview of like what the crew is like. Mm, that's fair. Um, uh, so the the second mate is Stub. Uh, he's from Cape Cod, and uh, his personality is that he's like easygoing to an extreme degree and indifferent even when engaged in battle with a whale. Uh, it just... Oh, and he smokes a lot of pipes. Yes. Um, he, he is... Yeah, uh, so so Ish- Ishmael's, like, uh, kind of uh, I- imagination of, like, what Stubb is about is that he he probably doesn't even think about death at all, or if he does, it's just to think that, you know, he'll find out about it when he gets there. Um, the same way a sailor might react to being called up to deck, uh, which I, I think that that, that kind of um, I think the question of like what someone's emotional relationship to death is seems to be uh, like what Ishmael thinks is like one of the most important things to know about a whaler. Um, I mean, I feel like he's got a good argument for that. Yeah, no, absolutely. In that they will probably and or definitely die. Yes. Um, I mean, eventually, yes, but, like, specifically by whale. Yes. Uh, so, like, Stubb seems to be someone who just, like, is unconcerned about death. Like, not in a brave or, like, sort of swash... Or, like, I don't know, like, swashbuckling way, but just in a kind of, like, um, he doesn't give a shit kind of way. Yeah, no, he, um... He is basically, like, completely, um... Uh, there's a specific uh, weird Ishmael metaphor arguing that the smoke from his smoking pipes must have acted as sort of a disinfectant to uh, prevent, like, angst or strong emotions from getting to stub. Um, that, uh, that it, like, uh, as in the time of call, as in time of the cholera, some people go about with a camphorated handkerchief to their mouths. So, likewise, against all mortal tribulations, Stubbs' tobacco smoke might have operated as a sort of disinfecting agent. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Uh. So that's just sort of not engaging. Yep. Um. And uh, the third mate 
is named Flask, and he's from Martha Martha's Vineyard, uh, and he uh, hates whales so much that he like looks down on them and, and barely considers them as actually being dangerous. Um, and he has kind of like a, a humorous attitude toward the whole thing, uh, which uh, you know, to be honest, that actually seems like pretty similar to Stub in a way. I now that like I this- describe it like that, but. It's, I think it, the, the crucial, I think they are more similar than, say, they are to Starbuck or others, but uh, I think it's important to note that Stubb is very sort of, I think phlegmatic is the term, or is that angry? I can never remember. Uh, no, choleric is angry. Uh, Stubb is very, um, like, he's laid back and unconcerned. Flask runs around, he shouts, he makes fun of people, and uh, his relationship with whales is that he's, quote, so utterly lost was he to all sense of reverence for the many marvels of their majestic bulk and mystic ways, and so dead to anything like an apprehension of any possible danger from encountering them. Uh, He's... Flask... Stubb is generally stoic and unconcerned, and Flask is specifically, like energetic and excitable and makes a lot of jokes, often bad jokes, but is completely uh, sort of, I guess, in denial about the danger or presence of the whale and just treats them as a kind of uh, inconvenience on the way to uh, getting oil. Yeah. So uh, so that's Flask. Um, at this point, Ishmael kind of explains the, the like, you know, the command structure of the Pequod. Um which, obviously, like, as, I, as I've mentioned by this point, there's three mates, and they're kind of, like, under the captain. Um, and he compares them to, like, military officers or to knights, uh, because they, they command the three boats of the Pequod and the crews of those boats. Um, and they're, they're specifically, like, knights because they wield these whaling spears, like lances, um, and each of them is attended by a harpooner who's, like, their squire. Um, so hence the name of these chapters. Um, yep. Uh, and so he then goes on to give some description of each of the harpooners. Um, and now we get back to colonialism. I wouldn't really call it colonialism. I think it's just straight-up racism. Uh, yeah, the, so... I think it's both. I I think it's... There's, a, there's, there's plenty of both. I guess that's fair. Anyway, um, but... Uh, yeah, so the, the three harpooners, uh, unlike the three mates who are all, you know, uh, white Americans. White New Englanders. Yeah, white New Englanders. Um, uh, the three harpooners uh, are all not white. One of them is Queequeg. Um, so he just sort of like, okay, you already know Queequeg. Um, yes, and it, it is important which one they're working Oh, yes, with. that's right. Sorry. Queequeg is Starbucks harpooner. Um and uh, Stubbs Harpooner is Tashtigo, um, who is a Native American from Martha's Vineyard. And uh, the entire description of him is like basically uh, just pure racial stereotype. Um, he's, yeah, it's, he's a hunter it's... and he's like noble and physically imposing. Um, yeah, it's. Um... I mean, it's, it's basically like the same stuff we've seen with Queequeg, but like without any interest in actually, like, exploring his character or, like, complicating this. Or or even in giving, like, a depiction of, um, of uh, Tashtigo's, like, uh, you know, home culture uh, beyond, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's those people over there. You already know all of these stereotypes about them. I don't need to explain 
them like I need to explain the South uh, the South Pacific Island kind of space. Mm, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then uh, the the third uh, the third harpooner flasks um, is an African man named Dagu, uh, who also has like a description that's just uh, pure stereotype, and it's all about how like huge he is. Yeah, and like specifically, I mean specifically like uh i mean almost almost literally ah yes a you know an african king who signed on to the whaling ship he's like immense I, i'm going to compare him to what uh us a uh, i don't know how to pronounce that which is a, a classical reference to um i think someone who like wrestled with hercules um or something like that uh and who has like you know uh golden jewelry and in general is very um you know, imposing, but again, in this completely stereotyped way. Yeah. Um, I I feel a little silly being like, oh yeah, these descriptions are simply racist when like, you know, we've been so interested in Queequeg, but like Queequeg is a character. I don't think these two really are. They, yeah, they do appear and get dialogue, which is again, execrably eye dialogue in a way that, in the same way that Queequeg's is, but uh, they really don't get the kind of, int- like even glancing interiority that Queequeg gets to be mildly fair to like to 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 be sorry I should say utterly fair not mildly to be more than fair to Melville uh Stubb and Flask don't particularly get much uh explication beyond this description but it's also the case that their descriptions are all about their like personalities and their like approach to whales and their appreciation of them and then the description of Tashtego and Dagu are like basically just physical and a bit of their like personal history it's really uncomfortable yeah and you know um it gets even more uncomfortable because very specifically um uh that they state that um quote and Ishmael here is definitely being extremely uh, bad, extremely racist, and extremely colonial, saying, uh, I say because in all these cases, talking about, say, the construction of American canals and railroads, the Native American liberally provides the brains, and by Native American he means white New Englander, uh, liberally provides the brains, the rest of the world as generously supplying the muscles. Yeah, so what he's talking about there is the fact that most of the crew of the Pequod uh, are not white. I think most of them are, like, Pacific Islanders, is what he's saying. It's, um, um, it's the, the phrase is something like, at, at the present day, not one in two of the many thousand men before the mast employed in the American whale fishery are Americans born, though pretty nearly all the officers are. Yeah, so, like, the basic impression is that, you know, the... Um, on the Pequod, and and that this is like typical of, and of whaling ships in general. Yeah, yeah but that's literally yeah. Sorry, on sorry. the Pequod, and this is typical of whaling ships. Um, is uh, that like all the officers are white, and the crew is mostly not. Um, and uh, yeah, um, you know, I that that seems like it. That seems perfectly true. Like I. He's probably Historically right. Accurate. Yeah. Um uh and and he's certainly also uh right about like the other like you know huge endeavors of like American industry um and uh the military that he's talking about that 
the whites are in charge. Um, but but he's he's yeah. I, I, he sees this as a as a mutually beneficial partnership. Yeah, I think I think that's. Yeah, I like, I think you could read maybe like a touch of irony into uh, the rest of the world as generously supplying the muscles. Like I I think he knows I, that it's better to be in charge of things. Like he's not that. I dumb. think that's I think that's probably the case. But I think that Ishmael's image of the world and maybe not Melville's again. I I'm not giving Melville a lot of credit here because of the character descriptions we just got. But at least Ishmael I think does sincerely believe in this kind of. Uh, neutralism that you know turns out to be white supremacy but is being phrased as this kind of oh yes we'll all come together for some sort of larger project of humanity that different people will uh, bring in elements in different ways um and i think that what's sort of important here is that this lines up really closely with his earlier sort of christian pagan dichotomy and i think it's a continuation of much the same because the pagan virtues that he's talked about these sort of stoic um, intense, active, manly, and energetic virtues also turn out to align really well with, like, physical excellence and strength. And it is certainly the case that while Queequeg is not, you know, presented as in any way stupid or, um, you know, unclever, he is absolutely presented as being physically excellent in a way that goes far beyond any depiction of, like, I think any character's, like, intellect except for Ahab's. Yeah. Um, also, uh, while I think I think the Azores, which uh, is stated as being the place where um, a lot of uh, uh, American whalemen come from, and he does say that islanders make the best whalemen, but he means islanders in like a a general sense of people who live on small islands, since he also talks about like the Shetland Islands as having the same quality. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, that, that, that all sounds, that, that, that's, yeah, that's pretty much what he says. Um, yeah, I don't think there's too much else to say. He, he's really, he really wants to make sure you know the, like, national and potentially regional origin of all of these people. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, it's it, it's like the only information he gives you about most of the crew, and it's the yeah. first thing he tells you about the mates. Yes, who are like what Cape Cod, uh... Cape Cod, Nantucket, and Martha's Vineyard. Yes. Yeah. Actually, here's a question: Was is does uh, Tashtego, who's also from Martha's Vineyard, he is not Flask's quote unquote squire? So uh, the two Martha's Vineyarders do not actually serve on the same boat. Yeah. Yeah, I. That surprises me actually. I for some reason thought it was the other way. Uh, I do think there's one one thing interesting here when he's talking about islanders is that he chooses to call them isolatos um, uh, because I think because of the the concept of isolation um, and says that you know uh, um, quote they were nearly all islanders in the Pequod. Isolatos too, I call such, not acknowledging the common continent of men, but each isolato living on a separate continent of his own, yet now federated along one keel, what a set these isolatos were. And there's various, you know, there's this sense of both like a, that this is somehow like an international endeavor, a universal human endeavor to go kill whales. Um, 
that again has these super racist colonial structures to how he thinks that this all fits together. But he's really trying to push this idea that while people differ and diverge and even on an individual level don't like relate to each other or have these connections, and many of them are, I mean, much like Ishmael, deeply adrift from other people, they can all unify into one sort of uh, one force and one uh, organization around the ship and the effort. And if it weren't couched in incredibly racial and colonial terms, that would be pretty cool. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I I feel like, um, I feel like I'm thinking about, like, what are things that are presented as, like, uh, you know, global efforts by, like, people of every country? Um, and the thing that comes to mind is the Olympics, which are terrible. Um, I mean, I think there's, like, the fact that every... Uh, well, nearly every large international thing is constructed under the conditions of colonialism is certainly true, but it's yeah. I, I, like what what I meant is I I think that the uh, like we have one of each kind of people kind of perspective that he has here a little bit. I, I think that itself is is inherently kind of fucked up. Um, oh yeah, no, I I definitely think this idea of yes, let us assemble a group of one person from every nation and therefore uh, you know and organize them under an American captain and and uh mates i i that's that way of thinking about the world is very i mean it's both pat and deeply problematic right but like i the specific line is um when he talks about the um them being a deputation from all the isles of the sea and all the ends of the earth accompanying old ahab and the pequod to lay the world's grievances before that bar from which not very many of them ever came come back uh like, this idea that this is sort of a unified force of humanity understood in general, going to, uh, yeah, lay a grievance, to, to conflict with some sort of, uh, I mean, well, higher power, basically, some sort of other thing. Except, and that's interesting. Sorry, yeah? go on. No, 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 please. Well, it's interesting that he's presenting in this moment everyone as, like, laying their grievances against implicitly the whale, but he doesn't actually say that very clearly here, um, because uh, he's also just laid out to us, like, the attitude toward whales of all three of the mates, and I wouldn't say that any of them are, uh, you know, expressing grievances against whales. Yeah. Um, like, um... one of them explicitly doesn't hold a grudge against whales. That would be Starbuck. Like, we went over that. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Stubb, like, has... Is like unbothered by whales. Um, <laughs> he's he's just sort of like, yeah, I'd rather not. Yeah, and 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 like Flask, you know, hates and dismisses them. Uh, so, yeah, it, I I don't really think that. Uh, I I I wonder how seriously we're meant to take this claim of like laying the world's grievances because because we've also had it laid out that like the most sort of significant members of this crew don't have that attitude. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think the relationships of the various people on this ship to that idea of sort of a mission to lay the world's grievances is really important to the narrative. Um, I also think that this idea of uh, humanity sort of coming together in order to face something, maybe the whale, is really complicated in the context of a few pages before, talking about how humanity's sort of collective endeavors are united by God. Uh, 
Right. Because if there's one thing we're going to get a lot into, it's whether or not the whale is God or nature or out to, you know, if, or even a rash, an entity that you can reasonably want to lay your grievances against. And again, Flask and Stub and Starbuck all basically don't think that a whale can really be an object of this sort of nemesis relationship. Yeah. And I... I think that this, that framing it as, you know, everyone uniting with old Ahab to sort of bring together humanity's grievances against whatever bar he's going towards is gesturing towards Ahab's side of that equation. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, then, then the last little bit in this chapter, um, which I just feel like is worth mentioning because it's, it's almost a non sequitur, um is that he gives a little eulogy for little Pip, who was apparently a member of the crew who didn't make it. Um, so, uh, there's yep, that. Who we have yet to meet, but, uh, quote, called a coward here, hailed a hero there when speaking about heaven. So, um, yeah, Pip's gonna, Pip's gonna show up again. Oh, okay. I honestly, uh... I, I think I may well have read to the section where he shows up again in the past, but um, I had forgotten that. Uh, and so, like, I definitely thought this was just a weird little footnote that would never be mentioned again. Yeah, I mean, it is shortly after the Bulkington one, which is a weird little chapter that is never, like, specifically mentioned again. So I can see how you'd feel that way. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I really don't know what that's doing there, honestly. I mean... Yeah, I... Other than, like, the idea that not many of them ever come back, and here's one who didn't! Yeah, but it, it, it's like... Yeah. I guess he just didn't want us to go too long without thinking about death. <laughs> but he's already talking about death in that paragraph. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, he already... He talks about, like, uh, not... You know, which not very many of them ever come back. And then he has this little eulogy for one of them who didn't come back. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's meant to sort of stand in for, like, everyone else who died on this voyage. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's just Ishmael being a bad storyteller. I do want to float my favorite hypothesis again. Ah, uh, yes, that's, that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ishmael's so... just like, oh yeah, that's someone who died. You should hear about them, sort of, but not enough to actually... Like, know or care about them, really, besides a vague pity. Yeah, so, uh, that's... I think that's nice and Squires. Yeah, lot going on. Yeah. Uh, so, uh... Do you want to let people know where they can find you on the internet? Uh, sure. Um, I mean, I, d I don't do much with it, but I do have a Twitter account at, at SilkAndStone, one word. Um, yeah, and you can find me on Twitter at Sharaznablunt. Uh, thanks so much for listening. See you next time.